Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Man in the Black Suit podcast. And we welcome our special guest, the one and only Morgan Locklear. Hey, Mog. Hey, how you doing, Morgan? (laughs) Oh, fantastic. It is uh, actually just started to rain here on the Oregon coast. And I've got a couple of skylights in my bedroom. So I now have the serenade of raindrops as we talk, which feels kind of nice. It's setting the tone, Morgan, setting the tone for a very chill Friday evening. Mm -hmm. That's our Friday night, tomorrow night. Well, and actually it's my Friday night right now. We have a little bit of rain over here in the east, eastern... uh, coast in Pennsylvania, at least in my part of Pennsylvania. It hasn't hit Philly yet. I'm happy to see so many friends online. Lori's joining us, Betty, and Joni. So we've missed you too, Betty. We really have. I'm so glad you could join us to uh, spend some fun time with Morgan tonight. Wait, is, is, that, is that Betty Perling? That is the That's one Betty Perling. Betty Perling. Okay. What? Uh, the day after I had dinner with you guys, um, or was it the day before, or maybe even the day of, um, we met Betty uh, in New York. Uh, Jennifer and my daughter Abby and I, um, uh, like I said, was a, I can't remember the schedule of events now and what happened first and what happened next, but one of the highlights of our trip was a trip with Betty through the Museum of Natural History. We spent oh, a whole fantastic. day with it. Fantastic. That and Betty's cool. saying hello to you. Uh, yeah, no, we had such great fun. And she was so kind to, you know, I mean, you know, as a guy, it's, it's amazing how um, I judge other people on how they treat my wife and my daughter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're, they're, they're so, she's so engaged and, and um, especially men. I'll tell you what, um, my, I should put this in a book somewhere. Maybe, I, maybe I'd be stealing it. But for me, if you can spy on a man and he's alone in a room with a cat or a dog or a baby and the way how he treats helpless creatures um and i don't know why that got me but but betty she she um you know when you're talking with betty you feel like you're in the hands of a giant and you're a butterfly she she is such a calming strong amazing person that you feel really safe when you're around her really i had a really great time with her I love it. I love it, Betty. I would love to. I would love to meet it sometime. Anyway. <laughs> so what a close be... call. Yeah. See, the three of us: Leslie, Pam, you, and I, and Jennifer, and a couple other friends, and our daughter. We were all together ten weeks ago in Robbinsville, New Jersey, at a place called De Lorenzo's Tomato Pie, and it was only ten weeks ago that all of us were together, and that was only ten weeks ago that I saw Betty. Uh, New York is one of my I cannot favorite. believe. Cannot yeah. believe it's been t- only 10 weeks. I mean, and we were talking about uh, your upcoming book, and, and yeah. here it is. Uh, here we are talking on the podcast with Monica and Karen and Joni and all the gang um, talking here about connection. I can't believe yeah, it. it. It really is. It, it is a trip, to put it in that perspective, because 10 weeks ago, I was so giddy and I was so nervous, uh, you know, because I, I, although Connection technically is the fourth book I've written, um, whether or not you consider fan fiction and 
novel. I wrote two 200,000 word books before I ever wrote a normal size book, my third one with my wife. And we published that together. But even while we were writing that, we were writing it as fan fiction. So Connection was the first novel that I wrote as a published author with the express purpose of being, in fact, I picked from 30 different stories, I picked Connection, uh, you know, not to peek too far behind the curtain. And I'm not really a guy that's all about numbers, but I did know that New York was popular and ghosts were popular. And I had a freaking New York ghost story to tell. <laughs> so, and I've got, I've really, I've got a boner for New York anyway. So I just, ah, so I thought, well, I'm going to indulge myself. And actually the truth is I had been writing this book since 2012 when at a NaNoWriMo project, I wrote the whole book in a month in November of 2012. And then it, it was just a hot mess because I it needed a lot of work. I needed to do a lot of research on New York. I needed to, you know, to flesh it out. And wow. um, I decided instead of writing another book, I spent the last couple of years untangling this knot of uh, Christmas tree lights and <laughs> spreading it around New York. Well, I'll tell you, I'm enjoying it. Um, I, I Just the whole New York vibe of it. And coming from outside of New York, to live in New York, you know, I, I can relate a little bit to that experience. I didn't live in the city, but I lived in Westchester, in the in the suburbs. But yeah, but you 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 lived in the city. I mean, you've been to CBGBs for Christ's sake. So oh, well, you've that's been true. in New York. That's true. You know, I, I know. This speaks to your experience, uh, and and um, Morgan Betty was saying that she watched Crimson Peak. And it reminded her of connection, specifically the last scene at the end of the film. She said it reminded her a lot of Patrick. So I wanted to share that with you as oh, uh, we talk about I, New York I, I and never, connection. I know Crimson Peak. It's I know Crimson Peak as a movie and not a show. Is is uh, Pierce Brosnan in that? I'm trying. I haven't seen it. Now I'm gonna. Now I'm interested. I'm trying. I to know. Think. Now I am too because I haven't seen it. it I haven't seen it anyway. But it's one of those movies that I've I know I know about because it's been around forever, but I just haven't gotten around to watching it. And you know, like uh, for instance, uh, *Silver Linings Notebook*. Oh my uh, gosh! A movie I have never seen, but I've seen on the shelf. You know, I've seen it sitting around. Um, Great movie. But I did go see. Hey, I did go see *A Star Is Born* a couple of weeks ago with Jennifer, and wow, was that a good flick? Wasn't that I good? I still haven't seen it. I still haven't oh. seen it. I've heard nothing but great things. I, I, I saw not, it. I love Bradley Cooper, so I saw it I two weeks ago. It was great. Wait. Yeah, it was great. I just had a conversation with my father yesterday, where I was trying to explain to him that Bradley Cooper was the guy from The Hangover. My right. dad's like, no, Bradley Cooper is a respected director. I said, now he is. Now but he, is. he was in The Hangover. I said, why do you think he had Andrew freaking Dice Clay in his movie? I mean, he's a comedian. He runs it. And, and was that Dave Chappelle? I mean, that oh. was yeah. crazy, mm -hmm. crazy casting. I have well, to tell you. I, I saw, used to go to I dances. Saw an with, I saw an interview with Bradley Cooper on, I think he was on Jimmy Fallon. And he talked about this project. It was a passion project for him. He yeah, was working on this for years. And mm -hmm. he had this whole idea and this whole concept. And hearing him talk about it, it really kind of reminded me of how that inspiration, that creative spark um, could carry you through. And I, I actually, since seeing the interview, I really, really wanted to see the film. 
Because um, I, first... I, I thought that was pretty impressive uh, that he kind of just put it all out there. Um, he's not the first. He's not the first actor to completely break out of himself because he was consumed with a passion project. I'm thinking right? about when Tom Hanks wrote and directed that thing you do. Uh, yes. Mel, mm-hmm. Mel Brooks and Braveheart. Mel Brooks writing, acting, producing, starring in Braveheart as a passion project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are the ones that are the best. I know. It, it just it, it was it completely captivated me. I had no idea before hearing that interview that that was the the genesis of the project. I thought, oh, someone brought it to him. He wanted to do it. I had no I first, idea this was like his his thing. I so, first heard him to talk about it about four years ago. It was, um, I think it was right after Silver Linings Playbook came out and mm-hmm. he was on a talk show and he mentioned it. He mentioned that he really wanted to do a Star is Born and that he thought Lady Gaga would be good for this part. I don't think they had actually met up yet. So I was really excited. And Bradley, being a hometown boy, yeah. um, you know, I, a Silver Linings well, Playbook... I know the the school he went to trying to get his job back. I went to dances there in high school. The <laughs> diner that they ate where he had the raisin bran across the floor. Wait I've a been minute. there Are many you talking times. About a silver linings notebook? Yes. Okay, two, two things I want to point out. Number one, you'll remember I mentioned I had not seen that movie, so I don't know what right. you're talking about. But number two, <laughs> I had no idea Bradley Cooper was in that movie and that I was bringing up a Bradley Cooper movie. I had no clue. I was just the first movie I could think of that everybody else on the planet has seen and I have not. So I'm kind of blown <laughs> away by the synchronicity that has just happened here. It's it's, it's really pretty good. Much, it's really good. You should so, check so it out. That's funny to me. I was like, son of a bitch. I didn't realize I made a point. You, know? <laughs> you always do that, Morgan. And, and P.S., we got um, some uh, chatter on the uh, in the in the page here that uh, Crimson Peak came out 2015 with Tom Hiddleston and that a uh, couple of the ladies still have not seen the movie. Um, Betty hasn't and I think Lori also hasn't and I can say I haven't seen it. Um, Lori says she knows she's going to ugly cry and I totally am going to too, Lori. I totally Well, am. here's the thing you got to understand. I mean, I, I, I don't feel very young or very, yeah, I don't feel very young. I feel pretty old, but the truth is, the first time I ever heard Twist and Shout was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm-hmm. And I went to the movie, A Star is Born. I had Making no idea old. this was a remake. <laughs> right? Well, I'm just saying. So, that, so that, that was my premise by saying that Jennifer wanted to go see this movie. She goes, hey, listen, I'll go see Bohemian Rhapsody if you see A Star is Born. And I'm like, well, I like Bradley Cooper and I like Lady Gaga. I did not know Bradley Cooper directed it until the credits rolled. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that... I didn't know that it was a, a well-known storyline and a, a, a well-known remake right. until Jennifer told me how she knew she was going to cry. Now, everything in this movie was a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. So I saw, I was quite the virgin when I saw it. So it was very, it was a very profound movie for me. And it, Jennifer, she had an, she knew what was going to happen. Right. She knew. It, but I can't I've tell you this. I've seen all four versions. It, uh, oh, wow, wow Morgan, that must uh, have been. Since then, I've powerful. done my homework. I know that there's a version with Barbara Streisand for crying out loud. So, yes. uh, yeah, I've, I've since backtracked the history of A Star Is Born. Yes, and, Frederick uh, Lodge, Janet Gaynor, Judy Garland, James Mason, 
Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand, and now Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Yeah, and well, I've I seen all four. I, I can tell I you this. To. Well, As I have not. <laughs> I've spent time on stage, and Lord knows I wasn't on a stage big enough to have roadies and an audience that big. But uh, I can tell you that this movie is a standout in terms of how it makes you feel a part of a concert. Oh, wow. Well, you know, he had Willie Marson's, uh, Willie, Willie Nelson's son's band back him, number one, but also walked him through how this would work. Yeah. And they also filmed it through Coachella and another music festival. And what they, they didn't put the PA system out so that only like the first maybe 10, 15 rows actually heard them sing singing and everything interesting but they were able to get the they were able to get i mean that was so there were some pretty big crowds yeah you wow. know that's ten thousand extras unless you go to coachella and steal 15 minutes of stage time and that's basically <laughs> what they did and yeah and you know what good for them i mean i cannot wait to see it i i i see betty said she saw the judy garland version uh Lori said she loved the barbara and chris christopherson version um and Monica, uh, I, I, Betty was saying that she could only imagine if Connection makes it to the big screen. And Mon said she already told Betty that in some years they'll have to tour places um, that are mentioned in Connection, which I think would be so much fun. And Thank so, you, Leslie, I mean, for segueing back to Connection. Look uh, at you. Yes. <laughs> I'm hey, trying, guys, trying to I'll keep tell us. You what, I, I, I'm <laughs> going to reward you. I'll tell you what, when we went to New York, now my daughter Abby was the first person to read it. So when we went to New York, she had already read the book and she insisted that that's exactly what we do. She oh, wanted cool. to ride past Greenwood Cemetery. She wanted to go see uh, uh, Brooklyn. And so we, uh, we made a couple of stops. We did the connection tour, but uh, an interesting thing happened. We were riding the end train out to Brooklyn and at the Queensboro Plaza stop, they said, okay, everybody out. We're working on the tracks ahead. You got to take a bus if you want to get to Astoria. Well, we didn't really need to go to Astoria. So we were like, all right, fine. I guess we're not doing it. But so you we're missed standing all the great Greek restaurants. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're standing there, and the train's sitting there, and the doors are open, and we're looking for where we're going to catch the train back into the city, and, and a New Yorker hears us talking on the platform. And he says, hey, if you guys are just going to go right back into the city, that's literally, this, that's all this train is going to do. This train right now is going to go right back into the city. You can go right back to Lex. Oh, great. So we walk on the train. Jennifer gets on. Abby gets on. And the doors slam shut. And I'm standing on the platform. I go, oh. And the train starts moving. So I just yell at them. I'm like, get off at Lex. So they, they got off at Lex for uh, 49th or 59th and Lex, which they just call Lex. And then it was, it's the very next stop once you go under the, um, uh, I guess it would be the East River. Uh, mm -hmm. And so then I just got on the next train and got off. But you know what? We, as a family, we were talking and we were really glad that it wasn't Abby that got left behind, for one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it would have been the same story. Just get on the next train, get off at the next stop. We, you know, we'll figure this out, you know. It's, I'll tell you what, it's fun to get lost in New York City when you haven't been there a lot and on yeah. the trains and stuff I was telling Leslie I, 
I went to a concert in Central Park. It was a uh, David Bromberg. And um, there was a lot of uh, liquid libation, some herbal libation that was included in our time waiting to see this concert. And it was a lot of fun. I only remember Phoebe Snow coming on stage. I don't remember anything else of the concert. But my white painter's pants had the nicest footprint of a uh, Converse sneaker. <laughs> I have no idea how I got it. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> so, but coming out, I there was with my friends. Uh, we had rented a beach house and and in Long Beach, New York, and we were we'd come in for this concert, and I had to get back to Westchester so I had to go to work, and my friends sort of disappeared, like this group of us. We just all kind of disappeared from each other, and I was with my friend Roberta's boyfriend, and we're walking down Park Avenue. We're smoking and on Park Avenue, the grass strip talking to people in doorways it was a lot of fun ended up taking the one train broadway line uh back to the bronx to get to get his car to take me to westchester well you know <laughs> trains are important in, in connection and and that was mm -hmm. deliberate and it, it was indulgent i um i had an epiphany on my first visit to new york which was in 2002 and um, uh, you and Leslie know, she spent some time together, but not everybody probably knows that I'm legally blind. So driving has never been a part of my uh, lifestyle. And it wasn't until I got to New York that I had ever been anywhere where I was on equal footing with everyone else. And again, I didn't go to New York seeking an epiphany, but at one point I was quite uh, overcome with this knowledge that while I was in New York, I was normal. <laughs> and I know that's a, that's a sentence. But it goes both places for me and New York. But I certainly was just like everybody else in terms of how I was going to get where I was going to go, how much it was going to cost, and how long it was going to take. I was a freedom. And I was, this was about 32 years old, I think, in 2000. I don't even do the math. But I was, I was, so I was in my early 30s. I'd only had one baby. So it was before Abby was born. And I was, I was really, I was overcome with this, this, for the first time in my life, I was just like everybody else. And it wasn't an issue how I was going to get somewhere. Transportation wasn't going to be my Achilles heel when I was in New York. And that stayed with me. And so you bet when I had the opportunity to write a, a ghost story and I wanted to, a city that had a lot of ghosts, of course, I'm going to choose New York. I did the research. There, conceivably, there would be 7 billion ghosts on the island of Manhattan and around New York. And this is just given the history. I only went back as far as the fur trapping days and the New Amsterdam days. I barely even touched on Native American ghosts. And so we're talking, there were seven epidemics of yellow fever in the late 1800s alone. Yep. And so New York has had so many deaths. I wanted, for, for me, I learned it from Pixar. If you under if you know if you watch a Pixar movie in the first 10 minutes of any Pixar movie the most terrible horrible disaster takes <laughs> place in these characters lives and yeah. then you spend the rest of the movie them coping with it so I wanted to do that uh, connection every book I write has a little mini challenge for me there's 
or a connection had three or four. Actually, I wanted to have a book that was romantic, but also had elements of fright. I wanted to be kind of scary sometimes. Um, and I wanted to write a book that was intimate and romantic, but didn't have any sex. Now this might turn some readers away. Lord knows, um, the circles Jennifer and I run in, people aren't looking for four shades of gray, you know, but, <laughs> but I wanted in, I, but it was a challenge. And in this book, I, I submit to anyone who hasn't read it and would be delighted to be backed up by anybody who has that I achieve intimacy between these two characters that is right on line with flesh on flesh, that has that same passion and connection. And that was my goal is to prove that you didn't have to do, not that I'm a prude, but I was, I wanted, I wanted this to be a part of this book. I wanted to be a book that could be in libraries. Uh, I wanted to be a book that um, parents could say, well, it's not my cup of tea, but my kid might like it. Uh, it's not really a YA book because um, she's in her 20s at least, but yet I feel like it reads like a YA book. Uh, the characters are all very innocent. I agree with and you. And Karen's backing you up, um, Morgan. She said, absolutely, Mog. Absolutely. Who said that? Karen. Karen, Karen. Komarinsky. Oh, yeah, Karen Komarinsky, one of my favorite people. There's a, there's a lot of real estate in my heart for Karen. She, uh, she made Jennifer and I her, she and Joyce Pennington came in and we, she, they saw us at the SAS signing in um, Norfolk, Virginia. And it was the first time Jennifer and I have been doing a ton of signings all over. And, you know, we, we, aren't the, we aren't the top tier writers. We're not the reason the tickets are being sold. But a couple people wandered by and bought books or even already had them to sign. But Karen and Joyce, you know, they treated us like we were celebrities. And, uh, and it was it was... Uh, really uh, such a great feeling to have someone who was so dedicated to your success, was so interested in what you were writing and so much a part of your world. Uh, and now that's been three years and Karen's still always there. You know, I, before we went on the air, uh, Leslie and Pam, I was telling you guys that I have a Mixler channel and I, I turn it on every morning that I write and I just let everybody listen to the records I'm playing while I write. And if I can, between songs, and certainly when I flip the record, I talk about what I'm working on that day. And as a result, Karen has, for the last month, she's been listening as I completed my, my most recent book. I, I took this last week off, Friday. This weekend is my last vacation day. I go back into writing on Monday, but I took the week off because I just finished a book a week ago today. And Exciting. Karen has me listening to music with me for a month. So um, oh, that's this, great. Uh, she, she doesn't know it yet, but this book is going to be dedicated to her. Uh, this is Karen's book. Aww. That's wonderful. Yeah. And oh, that is excellent. That yeah, is... She was with, was with me the whole time, so it was and, really neat. And MJ said, is smiling when saying, yes, Karen's her partner in crime. So that uh, very, very true, and we have a shout out to MJ for joining us as well um, tonight. Very exciting to have her. Um, MJ's a part of um, MJ's a part of Locklear Books. She's a she's an Inside Circle team member, and uh, she's got a, a writing career ahead of her as well. Uh, Jennifer and I have been very interested in cultivating any writer that we come across that hasn't taken that leap yet, uh, mainly be because they were just getting started or they didn't know where to start. Mm -hmm. And so we, 
we did that musings anthology last year that gave money to a charity that SR picked. And he was kind of not only write that intro, but to let us write a few stories about his characters even. Uh, and we just asked him to, um, to, and Jennifer and I are going to start, I've got a little pet project anthology that I want to start next year. And, uh, SR, of course, he's got that film deal and he's awfully busy and, uh, he wasn't able to contribute. He just, just contributed to a great charity and anthology that MFIT, that's right. MFIT and SR were both in that anthology. And so SR, um, really nice. We asked him a couple weeks ago if he could be a part of this anthology. He says, gosh, you know, I won't be able to contribute, but tell you what, give it to me ahead of time and I'll write your forward again. I'll write your intro again, just like he did for Musing. So hell, that's a... That's one heck of a consolation right there. It is. Because a polite no is good enough, you know. But he goes, no, but I'll tell you what I'll do for you. Tell you what I'm going to do for you. <laughs> so, um, so I've got a um, deal. This next year is going to be really busy for Locklear Books. I've got a short story anthology coming out in January. I've got this book. Um, oh, no, and then another anthology, the, the anthology that kind of has a Beatles connection. It's called Paperback Writers. Oh my and gosh. We're gonna, it's going to be a charity that we haven't even picked yet. Um, we're just getting started on this. And that's going to come out, I think, in June. Um, or, it's, or See, I don't even know now. Because um, uh, Talking After Midnight, the radio book that I just finished, that's going to come out also in about eight or nine months. And then Jennifer, at the end of the year, uh, right around this time, October next year, she's going to drop her... Um, last book of her constellation series oh my she's gosh. gonna drop that oh, at wow. the end of the year so there's gonna be four books coming out of the of locklear of the locklear library uh 2019 is gonna be a busy year not to mention we're gonna go to europe and back to dublin and this time we're taking our whole family with us mother-in-law daughter we're all gonna take a trip to europe oh that'll be oh, cool so exciting morgan so exciting yeah. and by the way karen as well as mj uh said thank you for your kind words um and uh of course we're all very excited about the prolific writing and books that we're going to be seeing in 2019 coming out of the locklear uh brain trust we're hitting a different stride now you know mm-hmm. jennifer I, um we're at that stage uh i'm i'm now a full-time writer that's my job now and i am able to write five times faster than when I had a job. I mean, you guys right. know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so uh, I, I finished Connection, uh, and that took me five years. But since I put the end on that, and while it's been going to editors, and I, I have to say this, no matter how fast you write books, um, I'm, a, I'm a real big believer in a proper editing of a book. And I've gotten into scraps with authors that brag to me that they wrote 35 books last year. And it's because they write the book and hit publish. They don't even read their own book a second time. And mm. I, I'm, I'm pretty outspoken when I say that I think that gives all writers a bad name when you turn out unedited uh, books. And not all books need to be edited harshly. Right. Some people are just really good at writing clean books. Uh, I myself don't require much of a copy edit. I tend to be very meticulous with things like grammar and punctuation, and only a typo is going to get caught by an editor when they're doing a copy edit in my book. However, as a content, you know, I'm the writer that likes to pick up every shiny object my characters come across, and I have a tendency to leave some threads unpulled. 
and a good copy editor. Uh, but of course, for me, uh, if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you what my process is. I write a book like this. This this book I just wrote. I wrote it with Karen on the on the other line. Uh, Listen to me on Mixler. And I wrote the book in about two or three months, a chapter a day, 40 chapters. Uh, and some chapters got an edit that very afternoon because they were too short. Mm-hmm. They were only 800 words, and I wanted it to be at least 1,200. So fattening up a chapter is a really nice way to edit your chapter and give it a second pass. Other chapters, when I hit word count after a couple hours of writing, they were at 1,400, and I felt good, and I haven't read them since. So now here's my process. Before Jennifer even gets the book, and she's my Darth Beta, if you will, <laughs> I'm going to, and, and this is important, a lot of writers don't like to go back and read their book a second time. I don't know why, because I got to tell you, the best writing that a writer is going to do is going to be on their, what I call their squeegee pass. They're going to read their first draft a second time before anyone else sees it, and they're going to do an edit. They're going to get rid of the things yes. that were indulgent. They're going to push the story. They're going to uh, either going to pull on the threads. They're going to erase a couple of things. And then when I've edited it myself a second time, then it gets passed on to Jennifer. She's going to edit it before we send it to two professional editors, a professional copy editor and a professional content editor. And here's why I say you can't edit your own book and your, your friend who's an English teacher, she's not an editor either. An editor, and for, because to me, respect the profession. An editor is an editor. Someone whose job it is to edit a novel is what you want to seek out because those are the ones that are going to make your book better than you could have ever hoped. So, I, you know, and, and they're, they're not there to pat you on the head. And so I went with the right divas, and I wouldn't say they were ruthless, but they certainly point out all my alliterations. And let me, let me digress a little bit. An alliteration is when you say sour spirits yes. uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, or, or you or rhyme, any kind of an in, unintentional rhyme. Uh, now, I'm one of these people that believes that it's okay to break a rule if it works. And I went through this book myself now with Jennifer and a, a total of six times. And I did get rid of many alliterations but it only strengthened my resolve on the ones that I left in. And even the blurb on the back of the book uses the, uh, the term sour spirits. And I got to tell you guys, after the book came out, it wasn't even a week. And I'd gotten a couple of reviews and, you know, got four stars and five stars. And SR was the first person to review my book on Amazon. What a mensch that guy. You know, and for those of you who don't speak Yiddish, a mensch is a good thing. But anyway, mm-hmm. I digress. This one reviewer, completely anonymous, I don't know who she is, she says, well, I usually get annoyed when I see a lot of poetry and alliterative writing. And then I read Mr. Locklear's book. And now I understand how this can be used to my benefit. I felt that when I was reading those, they were meant to be there. It was what it was supposed to be. It didn't feel forced. It didn't annoy me. In fact, it made the story better. And I'm paraphrasing, um, but it was, and I, I told you, Jennifer, this is the review I've been waiting for because I went against my editor's advice and I left in dozens of alliterations, but it was my writing style. Um, it was just, you know, and yes, it's indulgent, but at the same time, I, I gotta be me. 
So I did it. But I think that's so brilliant that she picked up on it. It's so brilliant that they picked up on it and, and could tell it was intentional and that it moved the story forward and it was it was true to your voice for that story. And, and, and I think yes. that's fantastic. Well, I'm a songwriter. Um, in fact, it says it in my bio in the book. Before I wrote, I wrote 600 songs. And um, I am used to expressing myself in about 180 words, <laughs> you know, maybe. And wow. so now it's very different. Now, first of all, I don't have to rhyme everything. But to me, I took it seriously when I was in high school and my class was called Language Arts. Mm -hmm. That was very, that meant something to me. That, that was always stuck with me that language was an art. Now, that's not to say that all of my books are going to be like that. In fact, the very next book that I wrote, um, Talking After Midnight, is a book from a first person point of view. So this book I'm writing is a character named Jason McVeigh. Well, Jason McVeigh doesn't think like Morgan. He doesn't mm -hmm. talk like Morgan. And he certainly doesn't alliterate like Morgan. So mm -hmm. I, I don't have that kind of writing style in this book. I have a total, because as a writer, and again, like I told you, every book has a challenge. My, my challenge for this was to be better at writing dialogue. There was a lot of narrative in connection. It, it's a mm -hmm. very green book. You can tell that it's a book that's pretty new. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot that I need to learn as a, as a writer. And so my next challenge was to write dialogue. And that's what this next book, what dialogue, hey, hell, he's on the radio, he's on the mic. And Jennifer challenged me further. I was writing it first person and what's called past tense, first person past tense. So right. Jason went to the store and bought some milk. Well, Jennifer said, no, Morgan, I want you to write it like some of your action adventure short stories where you write it in present tense. Mm -hmm. I'm on the train. I'm running across the top of the train and jumping. And she goes, she goes, even though it's not an action adventure, life or death story, the fact that he's on the air, he's on the mic, I think you could have a real urgent story and it would punch it up. So I was only two chapters in and I rewrote the first two chapters and this is my first novel where I'm writing in first person active. That's what it's called, first person active, where mm -hmm. it's happening. You know, you're reading the moment as it happens. And I just got off the phone with my agent yesterday and she said that she really felt that there was no other way this book should have been written and really commended Jennifer for early on catching me and making me change that style. And I'll tell you what, when I edit this thing on my second squeegee, which I'm starting in three days, I'm going to be looking for all the times that I slipped back into the went to right. the store. He said, right. you know. <laughs> oh, the tenses, the tenses. I mean, that, that can be... I, I, I love that, but I also find myself sometimes slipping into that, and you have to be really uh, mindful of that. And I have to tell you, Monica actually had some good questions for you, Morgan. Um, hey, she wanted to know, when do you know the book is ready? Oh, when you're sick and tired of fucking reading it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and um, perfect. <laughs> it, it is, and, and to tell you the truth, I am. Um, I, I take. There's a song that Twenty One Pilots had out in 2015, and they say never trust a song that's perfect. Mm -hmm. And um, I, after I'd already loaded the book, and I realized that the draft, the thank you, the acknowledgement draft I sent, did not include my copy editor. 
uh, who's from New York and helped me immensely with. For, for whatever reason, the first draft didn't have her thank you. And I had to reload the book even after a few had been sold. And, and during that time, I found a sentence in a later chapter that had a period and then had a question mark. So I had, I had two punctuation. I had to get rid of one. And I um, purposely left it in. Uh, which is to say, I thought, you know what? I don't want to trust a book that's perfect. I don't want to also be the type of person that overindulge with you. Know, to me, I like to let go. Con a connection was a part of my life for five years, and I edited that book. It started out contemporary. Oh, I'll tell you guys this. I had to throw out my best joke ever. The so the book was going to be contemporary. It's going to take place in 2018, but I ran into a problem. The ghost that she meets on the train, I wanted him to have been there for a long time. Well, New York trains get replaced about every 10 years. That's not very long. However, if you go back to 1963, there was a type of car ordered out of St. Louis called the R27. And they kept that thing. They beat the shit out of that thing until 1984. And that's a 21-year span. So I got so I decided to move the book to 1982 so I could put a ghost on a train who'd been there for two decades. So that was one of the things that I had to change in the entire book as I was rewriting is any reference to present time. And the best joke I had was my main character, she discovers early on that ghosts don't like electronics. They don't like TVs or baby monitors or whatever. So she begs and begs and begs to get a Bluetooth. Um, and so, like, as a ninth grader, she's got a Bluetooth in her ear all the time. And in high school, they called her Uhura. And I had to, I had to lose that joke. I had to lose that joke because the book is taking place in 1982. So that and many other things had to get rewritten. And, of course, I had to do a lot of history. For me, a New Yorker had to be able to read this book and know that I was telling the truth about every description about the timelines, about schedules, and I'm to me that's part of the fun. I love the research. And so I also dug in and, and made sure that every statement I made was true about any kind of piece of New York or music or anything. That was a again, that was part of the fun for me. Well I what I'm what I'm reading so far, I can feel it because you're setting this in a time when I was going down to the city often, and I can just feel it, Times Square. Huh. I, I, I can remember, 1980, I think it was 1985, the Hands Across America thing. Right, I took my right. son with me down. My, my cousin was a sponsor with her company in front of the Intrepid. So when we went down, and my son, God, I think he was like three or four years old. And going through Times Square and walking down to the east, uh, to the Hudson, it was, you know, for a little kid, it was a disaster because he, all he had to do was pay. Mm -hmm. And you can't walk into McDonald's and just go to the bathroom. You, well, sorry. You can, but there's 11 <laughs> guys in front of you. True. And I was stood on that wall ten weeks ago at the McDonald's <laughs> in Times Square, 
and me and 11 other guys just hoped to God that the guy in front of us didn't have to go number two. Oh, my <laughs> Lord. I hear you. I hear you. But, it, you know, but it just stopped. I could relate to it. I could right. relate yeah. to it. Well, and as Betty says in the chat room, she said connection is a love letter to New York City. And she read it in three days and she was hooked on the novel. And Karen said she felt like she was visiting NYC. So kudos to you, um, Morgan, for, for nailing it. I was, um, you know, that was the part that was indulgent. That was the part that, that I got so much out of. I felt guilty for writing it. But SR said the same thing, that one of the first things he hit on in his review was that I really felt the New York vibe. And, and for me, I'm really glad that came through. I was focused on trying to create a world of spirits that is for me i don't write paranormal i've got 30 other story ideas and not one of them has a ghost in it this was my only ghost story and for me I, i'm you know i like paranormal stuff but it has to be believable like like not a fantasy world but it has to be i don't know so for me the way to create that was i wanted to try to put the reader on edge right away i wanted the reader to think that Jesus, if I close my eyes for long enough, am I going to see a ghost in the bathroom with me? You know, I wanted people to understand that 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 just because we didn't see him didn't mean they weren't all around us as well. And that was my way of coping with the fact that I was uh, uh, trudging through territory that uh, normally is not even stuff that I read. Uh, but now I think I will. Uh, but world building was a big part for me. I got a question for you. Do you believe in ghosts or in that that field, you know, like there's something out there aside from us humans walking the earth? I Well, you know what? I, I think I do in a broader sense, which is to say I think there's a little bit of truth in a lot of fairy tales. I, I think that there's aliens and ghosts and vampires probably. Well, let me put it this way. I'm nervous because Jennifer and I just booked a signing for New Orleans. Oh, now, yes. I saw that online. And let me uh, well, tell you, that, my, would be, that would be a good concern. time. <laughs> I'm putting it out there. Here's my concern. I'm concerned that I'm, that, you know, I've, I've got the personality and vampires have really good hearing that I'm either going to be targeted for a quick death in a cemetery or they're going to give me the dark gift. And I don't know which would be worse. So. Well, anything can happen down in the Big Easy. I'm just saying, Morgan. So bring, get, not, bring your garlic. I'm not saying anything about vampires. You know what? Since this is a show about SR, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, take just a teensy, tiny, tiny, tiny bit of credit for uh, his uh, foray into his vampire novel. And here's why I say that. When I first met SR and I was writing um, a vampire fanfic and he was writing what would become Gabriel's Inferno and it was called The University of Edward Mason. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the first stories my wife gave me to kind of bring me into her world. And I was very inspired by this man who wasn't writing this hump fest. Right. I mean, you know, I'm not, not insulting the fanfic world, but most of the stories were just horny housewives getting each other off. And uh, here SR comes along and he's writing this really intelligent novel 
And it just happens to have the main characters named Bella and Edward. And I thought, oh my God, this is my way in. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try writing, you know, a really interesting piece. And I did fan fiction as well. But SR started sending me reviews. And in his reviews, he kept saying things like, oh man, it must be really fun to write books about You guys are having all the, he's reading a couple of different fics and they all had vampires except for his other um, contemporary, the other, what we call a BNA, a big name author uh, uh -huh. in fanfic, which of course, um, uh, an author that went by the code name Icy or Snow Queen's Ice Dragon, who later <laughs> became E.L. James, Fifty Shades of Grey. She was writing the other fic that was notably all human. Right. Uh, and, and some of their friends, myself included, we were writing vampire books. And, and I can tell you that there weren't, uh, there weren't, a dozen of them, but there were sure a few where SR was lamenting that he wasn't gonna, he wasn't getting to write some of the fun stuff you get to write, and I, he was right. That's why I did it. And sure enough, once he published Gabriel's Inferno, I think he went back and scratched that itch because way back in the day, all of his friends got to write a vampire book, and I think that he wanted to. And I'm, I, I credit him for that. And uh, I thought it was a really great book. So well, I remember him saying in a chat room that he actually had the, the Florentine series idea before the Gabriel series came out. Sure, because fan fiction was about vampires. Right. And it was an old human story instead. Yeah. That's so cool. And honestly, Morgan, I tell you and the, Jennifer this before, I just think it must have been a magical time to be at that fan fiction that at that genesis where all that all that energy and all that creative power was going through um and and that grew i mean that people now are studying that period and in, in in universities uh with it with that whole uh revelation well, of of it wasn't just eo now elj here's the thing I'm really glad that the biggest success to come out of fan fiction was Erica. And the reason why is because her fanfic was the biggest fanfic. Mm -hmm. So she was already the queen with the master of the universe. She broke twilighted.net every freaking Saturday. No, that was when SR posted. Whenever she, whenever she posted a chapter... You couldn't read it because the website crashed because so many people would go there. And then even when she got her first deal uh, through Coffee House that was then later bought out, um, you know, it was all the fanfic people that were driving that success. And I was really glad that because I feel like lightning could have struck anyone. There was mm -hmm. there's a ton of good talent in the fan. Even right now, you want to go read some really amazing writers, you just go to the Doctor Who fanfic page. Or Harry Potter's still going strong. Twilight's still going strong. And now Fifty Shades of Grey has its own fanfic. There are some really great Gabriel. authors out there. There's Gabriel yep. fanfiction yep. out there, too. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so that fun. That is really awesome. So, yeah, there's some really great talent out there. And I'm just I'm glad that it, the lightning struck Icy because she was the one that did it with no PR. With, I mean, you know, she rose to the top all by herself. So to me, it, it felt natural that she was the one who got discovered. And you know what she did? She laid out those coattails as long and as hard as she could. And she still takes time to promote books. 
uh, when it, when Jennifer and I came out with Exposure, her husband mm-hmm. published a book on the same day that my wife and I published a book, and she still went out of her way to post our link. Um, and it wasn't three or four weeks ago that I saw her Twitter feed tagging me mm-hmm. and saying, hey, here's my buddy Morgan writing his book, Connection, and good Lord, SR, in his group. He came to a he came to Jennifer Stargazer squad and took over for an hour. He's mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, he, he was the first one to review my book. The thing is, I love it when karma rewards people um, who are generous and kind to other people. And I see and I call Erica I see because I can't not. I see mm-hmm. an SR. I'm so glad SR kept the initials SR. <laughs> <laughs> so I see an SR. They've gone out of their way to hold on to the friendships that they had way back in 2009, um, and to to promote any of us who have gone into graphics design like Jada Delee, who've gone into writing like myself and Jennifer. Um, and there are so many other authors who have been riding the wave that they created and we're just you know it really was an interesting time to be around and uh jennifer and i feel really lucky we kind of caught the second wave mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what we're we're on the we're on the, the wave behind icy <laughs> well and betty had said she wished she had read the fan fiction when they had been written and wants to know where the gabriel fan fiction lives fanfiction.net so, fanfiction.net and you do a I don't know if that's Gabriel. how fanfiction is still up. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, it's still there because I go into it all the time. Oh, great. Yeah, that's great. Very, very cool. And, yeah, I, yeah sometimes, um, sometimes publishers won't let you keep your fanfic up if, you're, you know, if your book's been published and that story, then they'll say, no, you need to take that one down. Um, no, this is, it's not, it's not a source book. It's somebody oh. has taken the Gabriel series and started writing fan fiction on that. About the character. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about the, oh, the Gabriel. I thought you were talking about the Gabriel the, fan. No, no, no. Right. No. The, the that one is that. The Edward. It would have been back. Yeah, okay. The, the yeah, underground, the, the, the much and the, the much sought after. Uh, Paul. Yes. <laughs> the much sought after <laughs> literature that lives and lurks somewhere out there they've scrubbed it but i know people still have it uh, somewhere on their computer yes, the, the midnight the midnight sun of <laughs> silver Lenard's, uh, literary career the, uh, the 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 one that got away but you know what he, he retained all you know you're not missing much mm-hmm. uh gabriel's a far better name for the professor um and anastasia is a far better name was it no it's not anastasia i'm thinking of 50 shades of gray 50 shades yeah, was sense. anastasia yes they're all Fantastic! I actually Julia have Julia and Julia and Gabriel in uh, the Gabriel series. Good stuff. I have a, f- I have a friend who, uh, oh God, I don't know how many years ago, she downloaded a PDF, a PDF with all of um, the the original Fifty Shades that was on fan fiction. So I have that somewhere in the ether, and I also have the uh, Edward one. From get from that SR. would be cool, um, and Betty's saying she's dreaming of Paul's fan fiction. Um, as everybody may know, Betty is the big fan, big fan of Paul. That's she is right. Paul's number one fan. Um, That's right. And in uh, the Gabriel series, and um, I know there's a lot of uh, fan fiction going around in Betty's head 
at least, if she hasn't written it already, uh, about her and Paul oh, going yes, off the sunset. She's going to have in the library, that Paul character. <laughs> I know. The library lurker, as I like to call him. Yes, Karen says, yes. Betty, your Paul's story is waiting for you to write. Exactly. exactly I agree. Right. I agree. Um, and speaking of writing, uh, Morgan, I did have another question, too. Uh, have you and Jennifer ha ever thought about doing uh, follow-up or um, some story with the characters from Exposure? Um, or not you know, really? We, One and well, we, if we, if we, If we did, it would be Nathan, the director. Yes. And would set it about five years in the future. Nathan's now a much bigger director. He's working on more art house films and pet projects. And, um, you know, maybe he goes out to dinner. You know, like we, we probably have a cameo of the married couple of um, Shauna and. Oh, what's his name? I know. I'm totally blanking out. What's our, what's our little guy, our little book boyfriend's name? Oh, well. Anyway. <laughs> I'm because I'm, I'm three I know, books I'm ahead of Jack, and I'm like, right no, now. it's not Jack. It's no, no, no. constellation. I know, I know. David, it's David, David Quinn. David Quinn, yes. I think. Yes. Oh, Shauna and David. You know, they'd be parents of maybe two twins, and they we'd see them in a chapter or two, and the story would basically be about um, Nathan, and Nathan as a director dealing with two stars who are supposed to hate each other in the movie, they're enemies in the movie, but on set they fall in love and they start having sex and they're having a hard time playing mean to each other and Nathan has this crisis because his two freaking enemies are humping each other in the trailer every chance they get and they don't want to hurt each other's feelings even as actors. So I have this idea that that it might be a short story uh, because be I will now. tell you that Jennifer and I, we do have a full-length novel in mind. We have um, almost every chapter outlined. And it's about uh, a girl named Rachel who rides the rails in the 1930s and gets married. But she ends up in a relationship that's just not great. And by the 60s, she has stolen her abusive husband's boat. And she's now sailing around the Mediterranean. And she's one step ahead of a private detective who's trying to chase her down. Oh, and so um, it, it's a really great little caper book. We've got some, we, the first thing I had to do was come up with a few original con artist um, capers, you know, some, something that, that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And once we came up with a few good of, of those, we knew we could carry on. The book had to be really clever or we weren't going to go forward with it. So Jennifer and I, I'm actually going to start writing that in January. I'm going to start putting the bones together for a book that then Jennifer will then take over and that we'll publish together. And that'll be probably early 2020. Oh, cool. oh that will be, I cannot wait to read that on so, so many levels. And I love the fact that you challenge. We're really excited. I love we're these challenges excited. that you put to yourself. I think that is, um, I think that's incredibly motivating and smart and um, just fun. I mean, well, I Listen, I, it, for me, it's a philosophy of life, if I may. We're not just called humans. We're called human beings. The connotation being that we are always in the process of becoming who we are. We're a work of art and a work in progress. So I try to view my life like that. And that I'm, you know, hopefully I'm getting better and better every year. <laughs> not my body, but my brain. <laughs> 
<laughs> so when I'm writing, for me again, I know that I'm making mistakes that young writers make. Um, I can't. I'm, I know that review is going to come along about connection, where he says, "Well, you know, the first five chapters, there's like three lines of dialogue, and, you know, and I couldn't get myself out of that hole. I had to. There were so many things I had to get out." And there was mm -hmm. so much world building I had to do that I just went ahead and broke that rule. Same thing with alliteration. I broke that rule. But I thought, you know what? That's because I'm young as a writer. I don't know what I'm doing yet. And people are going to forgive me. So because I did meet my other challenges. So I was able to pacify myself. And that's the same thing with every book. I'm trying to become a better writer. So yes, every book is going to have one or two little challenges that I'm trying to reach for. Uh, in order to, you know, hone the craft. Yeah, I've got a it. question for you on your writing format. Do you do any outline for the story before you start, or do you just delve right into it? Boy, is that a question. Um, first, I'll tell you what you should do, and then I'll tell you what I do. Okay. A good writer will out, a good writer needs to know how their book is going to end. Otherwise, you could really be wasting months of time. And because no one wants a book that doesn't go in a circle or does go in a circle. I don't even know. I don't even know what analogy to use. But the point is you really should start your book knowing where it's going to end. However, I start my books knowing where they're going to end. And I occasionally end up following my characters down different pathways. And sometimes I never come back. And connection went where I wanted it to go. But the book I'm writing now went in a different direction. And, and I, I've decided to let that happen. And I feel like to answer the question, you should go in with a plan, but you should also be willing to um, be flexible and let your characters uh, kind of walk their own path sometimes. Right. You're, you know, being, you're letting your character, you're letting the characters kind of direct where, the, the, where they're going. You're, you're kind of listening to that truth. But isn't that like really life? Right. I mean, isn't yeah. that and like life? You can go in with a plan, but sometimes you have to go with just go with the go with yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah. frankly, I I'll I'll bet other writers would call that lazy writing. I'm not no. even so sure that I wouldn't call it lazy, but I can't help it because to me, as a musician, it's when your hands start operating independently of your brain that you're finally jamming. That, mm -hmm. you're, that you're speaking in tongues, as it were. So when that happens as a writer, then for me, I feel like that's the, go ahead and stay there. And another thing is, you guys have heard the adage that you can't tickle yourself, right? I mean, no one, mm -hmm. you know, you can't tickle yourself. Well, it's another thing I like to tell myself and anyone who will listen is, if you're writing and you make yourself laugh or cry or think, you're on the right track. Because even in writing, you shouldn't be able to tickle yourself. And if you do, then take that as a sign that you are doing the right thing. Well, you know, I was just recently um, at a book signing for Deb Harkness. And she just did it. It's not a continuation of the All Souls trilogy, but it takes one of the characters and tells his story. And cool. she was saying that, you know, was. Well, she start, she'll start writing all this stuff and write, 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 write. But she thinks the characters should be going in this direction. And all of a sudden, the character's like, no, 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 no. We're going here. And that, so that kind of, kind of, I had the idea 
of of what you're saying. You know, they they form their own personalities and push themselves forward. So it was cool. I I I always love hearing how authors approach books and how they approach writing and the process and I it's it's and with Morgan honestly because of your background as a musician and an artist I I I I totally can appreciate the way you're uh, tackling these uh, these projects and these stories and responding to that that muse that is calling you very cool and I will have you know everyone we are listening tonight to Connections by Morgan Locklear put together by Ellie Reed on Spotify it's our playlist is that what I haven't heard any of the music playing in the background but I, I know I'm familiar with the songs of course <laughs> well, I'm repeating it now yeah it's it's a great little soundtrack uh, you know I I um, 82 was a little bit early for me I didn't really start getting into music until high school which would be more like 84 or 85 and so of course I heard of upstairs at Eric's and and there you know many classic albums that were big in 81 and 82 so it wasn't hard for me when I was writing the book to pick which song was coming in on the radio uh, although I'll, I'll let you in on an interesting side note I'm not a big fan of the song Electric Avenue but there's actually a chapter and a mention of that song in the chapter Electric Avenue because I can't ignore the fact that that song was gargantuan at that very moment in time that I was writing about. So like it or not, you know, hey, I don't like Edie Brickell and New Bohemians either, but if I was writing a song about 1994, there they'd be, or a book about 1994. Well, so. it's, I love the way you think about music. Being the musician, I can understand that. But... I, I, you know, 1982 was the height before I was married. I was still single. I'm going to, I'm going to CBGBs. I'm going to the bottom line. Ah. Uh, <sighs> well, music Doing... is fantastic. Yeah, it's important. I mean, the reason, in fact, you know, what's funny in the book connection, I had to find late in the book and this, I wouldn't call it a spoiler. Um, which is why I'm willing to talk about it. But late in the book, a totem becomes necessary. And um, uh, my, my, my character, Olivia, is given a harmonica. And this harmonica proves to be a very valuable tool in her being able to help out her friend. And for a while, I didn't know what totem I was going to use. I, I knew I had to have one. And I was trying to think to myself, what is something that's small? But the power that it has is uh, quite big in uh, relation to its size. Now, obviously, the number one answer for something being small and powerful relative to its size would be a pistol. Well, I don't want a freaking gun. So <laughs> the next thing, in my opinion, that is heavy and huge is a harmonica because you can do so much with this tiny little thing. It can make so much noise and you can play any song on it with relative ease. It's a very simple instrument like the piano. In fact, I took piano lessons as a kid and when I listened to Huey Lewis in the News, their sports album, I mm -hmm. said, well, that's it. I gotta start playing the harmonica. And so that's when it hit me. 
when I was writing this book, I thought, well, why not use a harmonica? This is like, I can bring music into this book and it'll be a very powerful totem. And I happen to know that the first songs you learn to play on a harmonica are When the Saints Go Marching In, Angel Band, Amazing Grace. And so I put all of those songs into the last few chapters because I was able to use my own personal experience. And that was very satisfying to me. It's when I knew the book, uh, and again, this was five years ago when this all came together, when I knew the book was going was gonna, to um, was gonna have a, a, a satisfying conclusion was when I brought the harmonica in. And so that was very satisfying, yeah. Will you grace us with a harmonica solo this evening? <laughs> oh, well, uh, sure, I, you know, I've got, um, I've actually got a suitcase full of harmonicas. Um, every harmonica has to be, unlike a piano where you can just buy one, if I buy a harmonica, I have to buy one in the key of the song I wanna play. Mm. So. If I'm doing something just extemporaneous, I'm going to grab one of my two G harmonica. I have two Gs because um, I, I blow the hell out of these things, and you can blow a harmonica apart in time. And so I'm going to grab keys. Yeah, yeah. I know. So I learned yeah. something today. Yes. I... So if I if, when I play harmonica with my bands, and I'm not in any bands anymore currently, but um, I have to. I, I, I ahead of time, I have to know. What key, in fact, if you ever watch an old Blues Traveler concert, you'll see that John Popper has suspenders, and the suspenders have little boxes on them, up and down, both suspenders. Each one of those holds a different harmonica, so he can quickly pull it out and play it and put it back, and he's got all of his harmonicas. And I have a little suitcase that has about a dozen of them. So, so I'll grab this G harp, and I'll just give you about 30 seconds of something bluesy, shall I? That Excellent. sounds good. Uh, Lori said a suitcase full of harmonicas is a great song title or a book title. Ah, you're right about that. <laughs> I know, That's Lori, good idea. call. Okay, well, I'm going to call this song A Suitcase Full of Harmonicas. Okay. I love it. Again, the, the harmonica, so it's in the key of G, and it has all of the G chords, about three or four octaves worth, and then all of their, the, like I said, the chord. All the notes that go with G, when you play a chord on a piano, you're playing three notes, a third above and a third again above. And so the G harmonica, the E harmonica, it will have your main key and all of its corresponding chords, and you can just go nuts on it, or you can very specifically blow out um, a song. You know, there's so much with the harmonica. Do you know Robert Klein, the actor, comedian? Mm -hmm. Of course he, I do. He plays Don't call harmonica. Me stupid. Oh, that's Robert Klein. Oh, I was thinking of um, I was thinking of Kevin Klein, but yes, Robert Klein, the comedian, 
Uh, and and he plays the harmonica. He plays the harmonica as beautifully as Steve Martin plays the banjo. He, I went to see him in an in conversation thing one night, and he was up there on stage and he's talking and he's dis- discussing his life on the Bronx and movies and being in somebody's legs as they're trying to deliver a baby in a movie. And he had us all in hysterical laughing. And all of a sudden, he pulls his harmonica and he starts playing, and it was like really cool. Yeah, it, I'll tell you what. Here's a little hint for anyone that wants to play an instrument, and you you don't play an instrument, just get a harmonica, because I am not a particularly um, proficient harmonica player. I have a lot of natural ability, but I have not. Uh, massaged it very much I've just been able to work my mouth in a way of course I know music and I understand how to compose a melody but as far as a harmonica goes if you're willing to just do you know that old Bill Cosby routine where they're breathing okay if you can do stuff like that breathe in and out and move around and if you're willing to just experiment you can get really good at a harmonica in no time at all um, so uh, uh, not to say that it's an instrument for the people that need to learn, you know, uh, an instrument like the drums, because I find both instruments and all instruments difficult. But like the piano, a harmonica can give you almost instant gratification. And that's very helpful when you're trying to learn a new skill and you're not very good. It's helpful to sound good as early as possible. <laughs> I'm a very good spoon player. That. Oh, nice. I do like my spoons. (laughs) And I have to say, uh, Karen is wishing us all good night. She has to call it a night, and she's wishing everyone a good weekend. Um, And Monica also said she loves the sound of her name in (laughs) harmonica. Harmonica. Pretty clever, too. That actually makes me think of friends, because Monica Geller's dad always called her his little harmonica. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Elliot, I, I love it oh my gosh I, co- I totally forgot about that until you mentioned it just then well, Mon I think you have a new nickname now a little harmonica, <laughs> a little well, harmonica. Jennifer, and I, Jennifer and I were on our honeymoon in 1995 and Friends had just started a month or two before and it was it was a, it was a hit right away but we ended up at Man's Chinese Theater and scoring tickets to that night's taping and so oh. we ended up seeing a show called the one with the two parts part one and what made this show particularly memorable was it was the one where they were flirting with two doctors played by george clooney and noah wiley oh and monica and rachel had switched identities and it involved the monkey it involved the birthday cake eric lasalle was hanging out on set and elliot gould was in the show elliot gould almost hit me with his car after the taping so there's my claim to fame <laughs> sure sure i've had lunch with el james but elliot gould almost hit me with his car <laughs> oh, sure i took a leak next to roger moore but elliot gould almost hit me I'll with his car i tinkled with ann bancroft there you go <laughs> but I, 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 got nothing. I got nothing guys i got nothing i can't I match did meet that bruce 
Uh, you did meet Bruce. I did meet Mr. Bruce in 1977 in, in a friend's apartment. Well, it must have been nice for you to see him achieve the success that you probably knew back in 77 he was due. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was a high school kid, and I was following this little band out of Berkeley, California called Green Day. Oh and gosh. I wished and wished and wished for this little band because they were really, it was punk, but it was really ear candy punk. It was really poppy, and I just loved it. And My three or brother. four years later, I'm in college, and they get a contract. They're on Saturday Night Live, and a whole bunch of their fans were screaming sellout. And I'm like, why do you root for a band to succeed and then call them a sellout Sell when they finally get successful? I just, it kills me. And, Ugh. It's that My support of, you know what it's it's about supporting it's about supporting your peers and supporting people you it, it goes back to your karma thing Morgan you know mm -hmm. it's, it's it's about it's about being uh, you know respectful and and happy for people well let me tell you my take especially in the author world I've never once come across a bookshelf that could only hold one book mm -hmm. that means that there's room enough for all of us to succeed and why we, we should support each other. And again, the we only should. times I ever get to a row with other authors is when they tell me that I'm an elitist snob because I can afford an editor. And I'm like, look, writing novels is not a free hobby. Every guitar player has to buy a freaking guitar. Every right. no when, when Jennifer and I publish a book, there is a certain amount of money that we know we have to spend to make sure that book is as good as it can be. Five or six hundred dollars of it is on editing, and then you mm -hmm. got a cover for a couple hundred. If you do that, though, then your book, the, the investment you put in your book, not only is it all your time, why wouldn't, if I'm going to put five months of time, or in the case of Connection, five years of time into writing this book, of course I'm going to send it through the car wash before I put it up on the shelf for people to buy. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to shiny it up real nice. And I think that uh, if authors are willing to do that, then other authors should support. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't like the idea that some authors aren't doing that. And so that's where that's when I worry that I'm adding part of the problem. I'm not supporting authors that put out unedited books. <laughs> but again, I think that's that's because I feel like it hurts us. Uh, there's, I mean, let, let's face it. Who here has not bought a book on Amazon and just scratched your head and went, how did this even, is there a screening process? I mean, <laughs> is, is there any, is there any bar at all to get your book on it? No, there's not. There's no bar. You can do whatever you want. So it helps the, it helps the author world when the best of our work can be put out there. Well, and I think that's a way to respect your fans and your readers too, you know? Oh. It's it's yeah. treasuring it's treasuring it's treasuring your work and it's it's valuing your readers. Right, right. And there Thanks. is I mean there is a process. The editor is part of the. You know, I respect the profession of mm. editing so much that I'm not going to sidestep it or ignore it. When I'm if I'm in the profession of writer, I was supposed to, hey if I'm a if I'm a bottle of pepper, I'm gonna have to learn to get along with salt. So, you know, exactly. for me, <laughs> an editor is a very, very interesting, and I'm talking about an editor that doesn't know me, preferably right. doesn't like me very much. 
Right. And is, is not afraid. Because I, I tell them when I, t uh, I've told a couple friends, like uh, even Karen, Karen was a pre-reader. She got the book a couple weeks ahead of time. And I tell them, I say, you're not doing me any favors by holding back any critiques you have of this book because I haven't published it yet. And so I, if, I, if there's a, something wrong with it, I want to know now. And I'm, Jennifer and I, ah, we're so mean to each other when we, when we <laughs> editor each other. We've gotten thick skin. I mean, we will literally write WTF next to sentences that don't make sense and shame each other. What the? How did you even go to sleep that night? This whole chapter is just, you know, and we'll just laugh at each other. But, but frankly... Well, that's what that means is is that we are focusing on the story, no, right. not on the writer. In fact, in fact, I like to say this because I'm one of these people that likes to be poetic, but I think that you should impress them. You, you, you're trying to impress them with the story, not with your writing. Right. You know any any you know what I'm saying? You don't yes. want someone to read your book and go, "Oh, this guy's such a great writer." That takes them out of the story too. If I want people to admire my writing, I'll write a slick song or I'll write a pretty poem. But if I'm writing a good story, uh, I'll, I'll give you a great example, if, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Sometimes a writer will have a very pivotal scene in the book that they're writing, but it just happens to take place in a brand new location, a place that has not already been established in the book. And as a writer, I encourage my peers and myself to change that location back to a familiar location or to change that conversation into something that's not so important. And here's why. Even in a book, you can accidentally upstage an important point with a bunch of extra descriptions. Some mm -hmm. chapters are really there to build a world. Some are there to build the story. They should all work together. But as a writer, you can um, upstaged yourself and the, that's a, a great example of just one of the little things that I'm always thinking about as I'm writing a book is that I'm not going to uh, combine a new theory a new character a new idea with a brand new location and a brand new you know I, I want uh, a little bit of familiarity to help smooth that path a little bit one of the things you've said two things actually that have gotten to me when in this conversation number one my mother god rest her she would have been 86 loved green day oh my gosh that's I, seriously seriously oh you're oh my gosh that's so fantastic i remember awesome. my son had one of the green days cds that when it first came they first came out and my mother's like, could you put that on again, please? Nice. That was one. The other, the yeah. editor thing. I have a good friend who likes to edit a friend's stories. I'm not going to call them books because while she goes out on Kindle and puts them out there, when I've read them, I'm just not into it. I, because I, the story is just not complete. The editing is so important, and I, I, I can't believe people that that writers would not want to have that. Well, because the problem is a lot of writers feel like 
use first of all using an editor that's out of pocket money if you don't have a, a publisher I'll, in fact i'll give you my dissertation on that as well that's what you get when you get a publisher jennifer and i we signed with omnific we got a, a free editor for exposure and he was great however we also lost 65 percent of all the revenue and we didn't get to pick our cover we got lucky and out of the four cover designs that they offered us three of which were god awful and basically had a girl biting her lip on the cover which i abhor um and then the third one or the fourth one was amazing and it's the cover of exposure with a film strip and it has all this I great stuff that. and it reminds me of the tie in 50 shades of gray actually so, <laughs> and it was all monochrome i was like son of a bitch this is it but we could have and we talked to plenty of people who did not get that lucky so when we started publishing our other book because the other thing is the publisher didn't give up we got a free editor that was all we got from them all the pr everything else that was all up to us so that's what you get if you can't afford to pay for an editor out of your pocket then you can try to get a publisher to do it for you but it's easier to just get an editor and to maintain 100 percent control of your book's profits also exposure right now is still like 1999 for the paperback uh, because i don't control the price my book connection is 9.99 so i can't stop um, uh, um simon and schuster's our distributor right now but um exposure is still owned by omnific and we can't we can't tell that we can but they may or may not listen and say look that book's five years old let's drop the price a little bit on it you know yeah. Um, I because I gotta buy that thing to go to signings, and I'm like, I I only charge ten bucks at signings. I can't be paying twenty bucks for my book. <laughs> Charging ten bucks, yeah. Right. I don't know. I just I, I don't. This this there there are two authors in particular that my friend gets involved with, and she's she you know she's just like you know this, the comma here, that kind of stuff, which is fine. But the stories themselves, I don't know. They need That's somebody to thing. look Again. back them. Well, you need an editor who's willing to say this story was a straight line. Um, there was no arc. There, you know, and, and I'm the kind of writer that if I, I'll just meander and write a happy story. But the truth is happy stories are boring when there's no like I said, it's Pixar. Mm -hmm. Finding Nemo starts with the vicious death of a fish's spouse and 900 of his kids. Right. And they leave behind one gimpy little kid who then gets kidnapped. And this is all like before the friggin' title card, you know? Typical you know, Disney. Typical Pixar, yeah. geez. I mean, the first 15 minutes of Up could make anybody ball, you right. know? And, and, and Ellie has. Doesn't, yeah, and <laughs> has, like recently. And Bambi. So to me, I am, uh, again, I'm trying to learn to be a good writer, and the best writers know that you have to have a good story to tell. Once you have a good story, then you start flushing out the characters in that story. Yes, sometimes a story is a character study, but it can't just be the characters dated. It can't be an episode of Seinfeld the, the, the show about nothing, only Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David can do that. Uh, you know, the rest of us can't get away with that. We're just not that good. And so I definitely feel the conflict is a part of it. And an editor whose job it is not just to look for comics. Again, it's, it's two types of editor. There's a content editor and a copy editor. And many of them operate independently. 
Um, a lot of content editors, again, they're there to, to work your story with you. Uh, and agents will do that as well. I, I got such a great note from my agent just yesterday. Um, she hit a real speed bump in my new book, said, here's the problem I have. Here's why I have this problem. And I said, I love it. I'll change it immediately. And, and now I know for the whole rest of the conversations we have, we're already on the same page and we're both serving the story. We're not stroking Morgan's ego. We're not um, trying to cut corners. We're just trying to make sure that this book, when it finally gets published, is the most interesting book it can be. Mm-hmm. And and as Betty says, it's very true. A good story has to have many dimensions. Yes. Yeah. And I, I love your point about the the editor. Um, I, I just, I can't agree with that enough. Um, and I know earlier before we uh, went on air, uh, you mentioned that you're actually in the midst of reading our podcast book. namesake, yeah. The Man in the Black Suit. You know, it wasn't even in preparation, but uh, especially since this podcast is dedicated to that book and that author, I am glad that you steered the conversation back towards it because it does deserve a a moment of reverence to the reason we're here. And um, I was able to name drop SR a little bit earlier because he was the one that wrote the first review for Connection. Um, But uh, I am, yes, I am deep into... um, into the man in the black suit right now. Uh, Jennifer and I, we both read books on our own, but we usually pick one book and a couple times a week when we don't feel like watching a whole episode of Orange is the New Black on Netflix, we're still working our way through Orange is the New Black. Um, Then we'll just read for half an hour and it'll be a book that she reads out loud to me. And we started this way back in high school. That that we read. So that's what we do now. We read Deb Deb Harkness, is it? Yeah, the, the Witching Hour. Uh, SR's book trilogy. Uh, fan, yes, exactly. Um, and now we are currently reading the Man in the Black Suit. And uh, yes, I'm deep, deep into it. They're like, I, yeah, they're. they're and Betty's hoping you're enjoying the book. She, oh she yeah, said. I love it. it. It's a real fun read for, from a guy's standpoint. Um, I think it's it's funny. The, the book for me, I don't know if he's intentionally trying to be funny. But I find the book, even at normally dry moments, to be very humorous. Like I, I'm smiling a lot. There's this, there's, yeah. there's, there's a lot. Of, it's very adorable. The book is very adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, of course, I'm so far into the book. I've, I've got to learn. A, there's, there's a couple things that happen, and I'm at a point in the book now where I have a feeling I'm about ready to read a second book. Like, like things, th- things are going I down. I think that. Yeah. All the a, a time. Phone call has Pam. just been made to a certain relative. <laughs> and you know, we're not saying this could be a whole series, kind of like in the in the realm of, of like the James Bond, or you know, you can you could go so many right, different manager, directions of these, yeah. these serial, these uh, kind of a whole serial, um, series, <laughs> serial yeah, series. Yeah, and, and <laughs> the thing is, you know, SR. Uh, for me, there is no debate. Um, I've emailed enough with SR behind the scenes to be certain that he has the Y and X chromosome. So um, this book for me, it's it's a guy who's writing his, his little caper book. I know because I'm doing the same thing. I Guys like to write action. And right. SR, I feel like even more so than The Raven, 
he's getting a lot of really neat action sequences out of this book. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. Yes. Completely agree. Most definitely. Oh, oh and may I? Um, I? I shared it in his group, but I was um, emotional a couple chapters ago. And I don't think this is a spoiler because he uh, he uh, moderated it and allowed it to get posted in his group. I shared in the den that I was very excited when I got to the part of the book where um, our lead man was explaining to uh, there's so many names now. But Nicholas was you called her. What did you call Jennifer reads it as Acacia, which I rather like. But I, Acacia. Acacia, which is also quite nice. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, Nicholas is, is showing Acacia the uh, private gallery and he's explaining to her about the accessible art for blind people to be able to walk up and touch it yes and it's funny jennifer and i have this inside joke that's actually kind of sad and that is that we don't usually go to a lot of museums because i don't get a lot out of them you can't stand even three feet away from a painting like if you if you go up to the rope and you stand at the rope, they'll back you up for like, well, back the rope up, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm laughing hysterically because that is what happened to Pam when we went to see the Botticelli exhibit in, <laughs> and in, West, in Williamsburg. I'm like, look, brilliant. if you don't want me standing this close, then move the rope back because this is a, they, I had, this is, happens to me all the time. I do not get a lot out of concerts. I don't get a lot out of sport. I'm legally blind. You know, if it's not on TV, you know, or in my hand, <laughs> I'm not going to get a lot. So um, we don't go to museums a lot, but we went to the Chicago Institute of Art about four years ago, and it was very random. We had no idea that we were stumbling into a Van Gogh exhibit of three bedrooms, where, in fact, yes. the Paris, the Paris and the Amsterdam copy of Three Bedrooms was touring with the Chicago copy. And at that moment, all three of them for four months were in Chicago. So Jennifer and I went into a room and we got a chance to see with our own eyes his three versions of his bedroom done. uh, One of them was done and then the other two were a year later within a couple weeks of each other. So they they were all around the same time, about a year separation. Anyway... I was in there like everybody else. I took my pictures and like usual, I walked out of the room because I was not going to get close enough to enjoy them in any way. And later I would just zoom in on my pictures I took. Well, in the next room was empty. It was a little mini theater and there was a movie going on and the screen was split in three. And what it was, was just to music it was someone zooming way in on all three paintings and moving the camera up to the bed and over to the window and down to the table and just following along at almost a microscopic view, all three at the same time. And but within minutes, I was just weeping with the fact that for the first time in my life, I was able to see a brush stroke on a painting. And a, and a work of art at that. And I was, and so Jennifer came in and I said, look, look what they're doing. And she looks at and she realizes, oh, look what they did. They, and people started coming in and anybody with even normal sight realized that the real treasure that day 
was in the next room where we were all able to get within sniffing distance of these paintings and really see what was going on. And so when SR wrote that chapter about accessible art, I shared that story in the den because it meant a lot to me that somebody found a way for me to see these three paintings. And touching would have been really great too, but of course they didn't have that available. I'm not totally blind, so I still, even as a half blind guy, I'm a visual learner. So it was really neat to just get zoomed in on. And it was profound. It's, you know, I, I still think about it. Last year when I was on my grand tour, as I like to call it, <laughs> um, there, the, the Uffizi, and I think mm -hmm. parts of the Louvre had areas where you, where they had relief pictures so that you could actually feel what the, what the, what the, picture was and and what? the sculpture which is another thing and it is just the it was it was just in I didn't understand it at the time but after reading this book I understood um, yeah. the Barnes Foundation here in Philadelphia which has a lot of uh, uh, art that Dr. Barnes collected they do the same thing with certain certain pieces where you can yeah. feel it and which is just you know I it, to me I didn't realize it now now I understand yeah you know so but to be able to see it up close like that like to be able to see the brush stroke that that had to be incredible for you because yeah, I know with Van his Van Gogh, with the way he the way he paints, it was just like these short long strokes that were just yeah so... yeah exactly. Now, if you guys haven't seen, there's a, an amazing movie called Loving Vincent. Have you guys heard of it? I've heard yes. of it. I still haven't seen it. I I saw that I saw the promo for it, and I again haven't gotten to see it yet. But it looked really good. Well, not only is it a great biography and it's told it's told uh, after his death um, uh, they find a sealed letter to uh, his brother I think and a family friend sends his son out to find Vincent's brother to give him this letter and through this uh, young man's journey to find his brother people tell him stories about Vincent and that's how we get him so that's how that's kind of the premise of how uh. the whole movie is told but here's the real kicker You'll remember that, you know, movies, of course, are shot on film. And every once in a while, we get a movie like Nightmare Before Christmas that stop animation. Mm -hmm. or like, my son, my um, granddaughter's favorite. Me too. I love um, it. And Chicken Run, Chicken Run is the very first ever claymation feature-length movie um, that has that distinction. Now, this movie, Loving Vincent, is also a stop animation movie, except instead of posing... Um, marionettes and puppets they simply painted tens of thousands of oil paintings in the style of Vincent Van Gogh and swapped them out 24 times a second in order to create this 95 minute movie and it's the first time that an oil it's basically an oil canvas movie that's the medium of this movie oh an oil canvas gosh. feature like movie and just any lover of cinema 
would want to see this movie because it, it is absolutely the first time it's ever been done. It's groundbreaking and it's beautiful and it employed people for four years. They had, to, and I'm hoping that one day I can go to eBay and find one of these paintings for sale. Cause you oh think my gosh, that would be phenomenal. I hope they didn't repaint over the same canvas over and over. I hope they, I hope they saved every single one of them. But anyway, they shot this whole movie like a stop animation movie, one oil painting at a time, all done not only in the style of Vincent, but many of his paintings would come to life. Like a scene would start with Starry Starry Night, and mm -hmm. then the paints pull out, and the camera would move down, and then the scene would start. With, so his paintings were all throughout, like dozens and dozens, like over 30 or so of his paintings were also in this movie to kind of ground us. Oh, phenomenal. Uh, Lori and Betty both want to see this film. Yeah, I thought and so. Monica, Monica best as well. Best movie I've seen in 10 years. Best oh. movie I've seen in a decade. Sammy oh. saw it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It, well it. done. The music, everything. It's it's just way I'm I'm not even worried that I'm overhyping it. No, <laughs> it doesn't sound. It really doesn't sound that way. I mean, it does sound groundbreaking. Truly, and something I, I'm a sucker for that we haven't seen stuff. before. I love it. It's something that's not been done before. You know, it's, no way. It's very. It's trailblazing. Totally. Um, and I don't know if it won. I I don't know if it won any Oscars. I'm sure it had to have won accolades. Mm -hmm. But I mean, hell, you'll remember that the Academy, the uh, the Hollywood Academy, the Foreign Press Academy, they gave Robert Zemeckis a special Oscar just for Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit. Oh yeah. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, but they weren't even going to gamble. They called him up on stage and said, "Here's your freaking trophy, just because you pulled this off. We want to make sure you, you will go home with something tonight." And I believe it won a couple of other awards, but it was so far ahead of its time. In fact, uh, for me, and of course, it, they say that, but truthfully, it was a nod to Mary Poppins because we all know Mary Poppins did a wonderful job of putting animation and live action together. Um, and so for me, I know I know Robert Zemeckis. Um, I, I know uh, I'm a student of his work. So I know that he was very aware that he was paying tribute to uh, to Mary Poppins. Oh, you mean the, the cartoon sequence? With Julie yeah, Andrews. Yeah, when they and, jumped in the painting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, with all the penguins. And that, I mean, that was what, 1963 or four? 1965, that was my friend. Oh. That was some pretty good stuff. That we, we just watched it in our house two weeks ago. And holds up, though. So. It does. I, uh, Nightmare Before for Christmas and Mary Poppins and The Wizard of Oz are the three movies that play at any given time in my house when the six, soon to be seven year old is here. Nice. In fact, she's Fantastic. gonna be, and she's gonna be Jack Skellington for Chris, for Halloween. Uh -huh. And um, her favorite song from the whole Nightmare on Elm Street uh, soundtrack <laughs> is the one by Marilyn Manson. And I, <laughs> I, and I wonder if I have to worry about that. <laughs> well, of course, you know that, that Marilyn Manson was a, a special Disney album, that that was a cover. Of course, it's Danny Elfman that sings This Is Halloween yes. mm -hmm. on yes. the actual 
soundtrack. Marilyn Manson is nowhere near that movie in reality. <laughs> All I know is that I downloaded the soundtrack, and it goes through the the cast, Danny Elfman, and then it starts with Marilyn Manson. Um, was it? Psycho before the dis or disco before the whatever, <laughs> and a few others, and I'm sitting there yeah, like, yeah. like uh, there's a special edition soundtrack and it's called Nightmare Revisited, and so you just got the deluxe package, uh, but yes, w the, one of the reasons I love Nightmare Before Christmas is that it is a Danny Elfman solo album, Danny Elfman lead singer of Oingo Boingo, and mm -hmm. and. Musical genius scoring. Uh, he's a, a, a scoring um, composer now, of course. But he sang, wrote, and sang the entire soundtrack. And the um, the voice of Jack, I can't remember the actor's name, but he played Prince Humperdinck in Princess Bride. Oh my gosh! Oh, oh god! That oh, man! I can't that think man, of that. Hold on! Hold on! I'm pulling up my Google. Google. Yep, Prince, he's, he's the Bride. actor. Prince Humperdinck, she is alive, or at least she was an hour ago. If she is otherwise, when we find her, I shall be very put out. That all guy. I know, all I know <laughs> is I actually got to know Andre the Giant. Oh, great. He's also in that Did he movie. call you boss? Uh, it was Chris Randon who played Prince Humperdinck. Actually, he was, he was a very quiet uh, person. Um, he... Well, his heart only beat 22 times a minute. I mean, he's an elephant. Of course he, he's he quiet. Was huge. He was huge. He used to go to this bar called the pa called Patrick's Pub. Whenever they came into the uh, Westchester arena to do their wrestling thing, and he would come in and he'd sit down at one end of the bar and his hands, if you look at a bottle of Heineken, all you could see at the top of his hand was the little bit of the lip of the Heineken bottle. And he would come in, put $100 down on the bar, buy everybody in the bar a drink, and as, just so he could be left alone. And he was a gentle creature. He was humongous and just out there. You know, it was just, he was just interesting to, to talk to and to be around and get to know. Oh, I love it. Pam, another chapter for your book, my friend. Uh, another chapter for the book. And I love the fact um, uh, Betty was... Uh, asking, she thought that your granddaughter was going to be Dorothy, that was and she also commented. She also commented that uh, your blessedness has good taste in music, <laughs> and I'm kind of laughing because my daughter, who is uh, 23, uh, was also uh, <laughs> uh, is played uh, dressed up as that character last year for Halloween, um, <laughs> and in fact, her her college roommates all went out um, for. And, and actually won prizes at bars because they um, they looked so good. Well, Isabella got the Jack Skellington costume from Spirit. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I, I, you know, I never really got into the movie, but mm-hmm. I got have seen it a hundred times. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I mean, for, I, of course, I think it's got great music, but I'm a stop animation guy, and and that was uh, Nightmare Before Christmas is the first ever stop animation feature movie. Not to be again confused with Claymation, which Chicken Run holds that title. Right. Right. Uh, Betty and, wants to know when you're publishing the book, uh, Pam. <laughs> um, 2070. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be dead so they can bury it anonymous. They can publish it anonymously. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Yeah, and and the Nightmare Before Christmas is Monica's fa- favorite movie. So. Oh yeah, I yeah. saw it in the theater, nineteen ninety three. I was in college, and I I knew that it was. Of course, I loved Tim Burton, and I loved Danny Elfman, and when I saw that movie advertised, and at the time, you know, the movie only did like fifty million bucks. It was right. a, I wouldn't call it a flop, but it wasn't exactly a hit either. Right. Uh, and then, of course, it just gained popularity and cult status, and now. <clears throat> Disney redoes their haunted house every October. Yeah, I mean it's 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 one of those uh, films that I, I think has just gotten uh, more and more adoration with time. Yeah, like the movie A Christmas Story, which now enjoys a twenty-four hour marathon on TBS, and yes. my favorite Christmas movie, Christmas Vacation, which I just think is timeless. Oh, we have an annual viewing with dear friends of ours. I mean, this is the annual screening. Of uh, Christmas story, I, I mean Christ- uh, Christmas, vacation. Christmas vacation. I mean yeah, our t- kids now, like because we it's with a some of our best friends, and we literally saw this movie at the theater when it first came out with um, one of my husband's best friends, and literally now it is family tradition. Kids come. Yeah. I, I I envision like in twenty years there'll be like grandkids, and you know, it, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know it's really funny. It's a Point it out do. to them this year. Leslie, if you haven't noticed yet, this year when you're watching it, mm-hmm. point out to everybody that the young boy, his son, David, is actually Johnny Galecki from Big Bang Theory. Really? Leonard. Yes, yes, yes. Leonard Hofstetter we knew- we plays young David. Yes. <laughs> it's crazy, right? He's only 10 or so. And of course, Julia Louis-Dreyfus has a great cameo in it before she achieved stardom. And um, the, the par- all of their parents were played by famous character actors. But, you know, Christmas Vacation, Christmas Story, mm-hmm. Nightmare Before Christmas. There are two other ones that round out the top five in my family that we always view. One is uh, Will Ferrell's movie Elf, Elf and Bill yeah. Murray's movie Scrooge. Scrooged, yes, yes. Oh my God! And Home Alone, Home Alone gets an honorable mention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm aging myself. White Christmas. Oh, I uh, love it. I thought you were gonna say Die Hard. No, <laughs> a lot of no. that's one of that uh, that is tops in many people's Christmas movie list. Believe the it or Alistair not, the Alistair Sim version of Scrooge. That was good too. And that's a 1951 version. Um, uh, what's the other one? White uh, Christmas Holiday Inn. No, um, it's a Wonderful Life. Oh yeah. And oh, the yeah. Bells of Saint Mary. Mm-hmm. Because the Bells of Saint Mary 
was on the movie marquee of It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, that's right. Mm. And Betty's saying Elf is really good. Monica said Christmas Carol. Um, mm-hmm. And Betty says she loves It's a Wonderful Life. I, I do too, Betty. That's just, it's, it, it is, uh, it is a classic for a reason. It is. It is. Very reaffirming. So we've heard a lot of great things this year. I know. We have a connection. We have another book coming out in June. Four books for 2019 from the Locklear Library. You know, when I was done writing Connection and before I wrote um, Talking After Midnight, I to shake out the bugs and because I get to treat myself because I've been working on the same piece for five years, I decided to do what one of my heroes, Stephen King does. And that is I spent a month writing five or six short stories. Just, you know, they were good. They were good story ideas, but they weren't novel length. Now that's interestingly enough, two of those short stories are going to be novel length. And I had to put them aside and say, "Uh Oh, that's not a short story. That's a whole book. And I and once I and I decided to pick one of them and run with it, and that became Talking After Midnight. So a short story um, anthology called The Apple Wagon, and then Talking After Midnight, and then another anthology with a bunch of other writers. And I'm probably giving away more than Jennifer wants me to, but we've got a ton of writers signed up, um, and that's called Paperback Writers, and it's an anthology. Again, we don't know the charity, but we feel it'll have to. The charity will either be about the arts you know, music arts or, mm-hmm. or painting arts or, or uh, literacy. But the anthology will be a charity. And the connection is that every story will mention the Beatles or a Beatles song. And it can either be germane to the plot or it can just be a car that drives by with a song playing on the radio. As long as every story mentions the Beatles, then all the stories will be connected no matter what they are. And the book's called Paperback Writers. That's going to be out that. in, I love it. in early summer, I think. And we've got some we've got some really big authors. I mean, I'm really excited. We uh, we reached for the stars a couple tiers above us right now, and we got a couple people to jump in. And we have a couple of brand new authors who've never published a book before that are going to get in. So I'm really excited about that. And then of course the the culmination of the last four years and the whole Locklear Books and Locklear Library um, project will come to full circle because all of this happened within the space of Jennifer writing these three great books, um, Constellation, Chaos, and then the third book, which I don't believe she's released the title. Um, we've learned we've learned from Michael Jackson and the Beatles that mystery is a big key. And from SR, everybody loves a mystery man. Oh my That's goodness. That's true. Yeah. There is no greater mystery than, than our SR. dear SR. That you is true. I, I've said this before in the podcast. I went up to TIFF this year in September. And there was one movie um, about the Hotel Mumbai where I could only get two tickets. So I gave them to the two of the women that I went with. And while they were in the movie, I did the red line routine, had my picture taken with Lucius Malfoy. And then decided just go grab something to eat, find a bar or something. And I'm I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this dish that had a lot of feta cheese, a lot of olives, and I'm thinking, grease, play man in the black suit. So yes. I took a picture of it. 
and I put it out there and tagged SR in it. And they get, were you in Penelope's? (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I swear he was a man sitting three tables away from me by himself because I I could see him working his phone. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that would be so cool. I'm sure you immediately checked for Argyle socks. I already did that. All the clues everyone keeps putting together. I think if SR did go out in public, it would be in cargo shorts and and sandals with socks and like a (laughs) Gilligan hat. No! And uh, (laughs) and no one would suspect a thing. Well, this person, this person that I saw did not have Argyle socks. (laughs) Um, Did not wear sandals with socks, God forbid. Just, just a normally, you know, just a normal guy, just sort of sitting there and enjoying a good dinner, dinner a good yeah. Greek dinner. But I, I never mentioned. And, and Betty said that is so cool. Um, I just think that'd be cool. Truly, a man of mystery. Yes. And yeah. and Monica uh, was referring, uh, made a reference, uh, Morgan. Uh, if connection was uh, set in today's time frame, the song on the subway would be morphed by Twenty One Pilots. <gasps> totally. <laughs> yeah, Monica and some other people who might be listening know that um, I have filled my timeline with probably an even mix of PR for my book and PR for Twenty One Pilots' new album Trench, because <laughs> uh, you know, as a musician, I was amazed at how many new musical experiences that album put me through. Uh, these guys are reinventing music. They are, I call them genre bending because there's electro, there's punk and rock, there's mm-hmm. emo and kind of um, um, uh, alternative, kind of that gothy alternative sound, but lots and lots of electronica and, and, and hip hop even. He raps sometimes yes. and all of it works. I mean, every single, this guy makes songwriting look so easy. His name is uh, Tyler Joseph and his partner in crime, Josh Dunn. And together they make this group, 21 Pilots. This album is their fifth, although they kind of reinvented themselves on their third album. They lost most of their band. And by the third album, it was just the two of them, a duo. And that's also when they happened to get a record deal. So for Mm -hmm. me, for me, for my taste, this feels like a third album, but I got to tell you, I have not heard a record like this probably since maybe in 1996 when Tool came out with an album called Anima. Uh-huh. Was I so impressed by the sheer originality and new look at how a song could be crafted? Every song on that album has got an album's worth of good ideas in it. Every song is like three or four or 12 really great songs. They move around a lot. There is a ton of dynamics in this album. And every stroke is a stroke of genius. I can't believe it's only their third. I can't believe these kids are in their 20s. Right. Doing this. Well, I just love. And the they're out of, they're out of, they're out of Ohio, right? If I recall. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yep. That's one of the things my, you know, I, I'm older than a few of you. and But when I talk to my sister, who is younger than me, and we talk music, her music s- sticks with 
like nineteen late nineteen seventies, early eighties, and that's where it kind of stops. And I'm like, well, how how can you learn more? I mean, I love the fact that you've got these these guys in their twenties coming out with new music and stuff, and oh, I love yeah. listening to it. And it makes it. Just... Well, I actually, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time engaging with SR. He's got his hands full with you birds, so <laughs> I, I tend to just about once every month I'll say hello or check in and let him know. I mean, he, he's a. He's been a real uh, great guy personally and and in my writing career as again, he's gone out of his way to be very generous to Jennifer and I. I really appreciate that. And uh, but for the most part, we don't we don't talk a lot. But when we do, it's to share, you know, something that's particularly funny or for me, because I know he is a fan of thoughtful music and. 21 Pilots is not only, first of all, I love it anytime I'm, I get into a band that all the kids are listening to. I feel mm-hmm. so proud of myself that I haven't <laughs> lost my edge, you know, and this album exactly. is doing gangster right now in the charts. Um, and yeah. you got to keep in mind, just, just to put it in perspective, this is a follow-up album to a record that for the first time in history, every single song on that previous uh, 21 Pilots record called Blurry Face. Every song went platinum. That's 500,000 copies sold as individual songs. Never mind the fact that the album itself sold 4 million copies. Mm-hmm. So you combine 4 million copies with a half a million on every song, 14 songs, you're talking 11 million downloads. And that's a conservative. No album's ever done that. It was only a few months ago they announced this. Now this poor son of a bitch has to follow that up. That's so hard. he does it and he knocks it out of the park. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to call it Sergeant Pepper because th- that would be ludicrous. But at the same time, I don't feel guilty for bringing up that album because Sgt. Pepper was an album that was conceived out of necessity because they did not have more than four tracks. And they had to figure out an album that they didn't have to play live so they could do anything they wanted because they would never have to reproduce it. But 21 Pilots went in, and he even says in songs... I wish I could write a song and find chords in a new order. Mm-hmm. I wish I didn't have to rhyme everything. And this is in his previous album. So I knew going into this project that this was a musician who had a particular interest in trying to come up with something that we have not heard before. And he did it. This music is very original. Um, and that sounds great on paper. Oh, a really original album, but a lot of times in concept, it's unlistenable tripe. But this stuff, Christ, there is not a bad song on the album. He makes songwriting look so easy because they're all so listenable. So that's my pitch. For the best album you will hear in the last 10 years, it's 21 Pilots, and it's called Trench. And it's a concept album dealing with mental health, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're they're so talented. And Pam, they are actually in Philly this weekend. I'm just saying I, I I I I cannot I cannot go and I'm very sad. <laughs> where are they playing? They're touring. Um, I know, but where they're in playing Philly? at Wells Fargo. 
Wells Fargo. Really? I think tomorrow night. Yeah. And and they're sold out. I'm um, sure. You can get really expensive, but you know what's funny, you guys? I if I wanted to spend the money, I could go to Portland. I could see them, uh, and their opening band is AWOL Nation, another one of my favorite bands. But here's the funny thing. Even though I can't see very well and I don't get a lot out of concerts, I have oftentimes gone to a concert and, uh, and to see a band that, for me, had a very magical, mystical quality. And then when I see two humans sweating on stage hitting occasional bad notes. Uh, it humanized the band for me. And this has happened several times. Mm -hmm. And I love 21 Pilots so much, I've actually chosen not to see them in concert because I'm worried that it might wear off the magic. Mm -hmm. Sometimes my imagination is going to serve me. And I love this album and I want to see them, but I don't want to see Josh and Tyler running around on stage and I don't want to, I don't want them to be humanized yet. Yeah. They're so much bigger than two men to me right now. I don't want that magic to end. Does that make any sense? It does yes, make it does. sense. And I think that's very valid. Yeah. You know, I had, I can... It happened before. It's happened to me with REM. It happened mm -hmm. to me with Violent Femmes. It happened to me with Tool. It happened to me with Weezer. It especially happened to me with Offspring because they suck in concert. And the only band that I've been able to get away with seeing, well, Suzanne Vega and Howard Jones aside, but Green Day, um, maybe it's because I met Joe and had a conversation with him and he was over-humanized. Like, oh yeah, God. I saw him as humans, but then I got a chance to hug that son of a bitch. And that was like, oh, my God. So, sure, uh. if 21 pilots will wait for me backstage so I can give them a hug, and, and they know how much they mean to me, then I might do it. But I'm scared <laughs> to see them and AWOL Nation, Aaron Bruno, I'm scared to see them in concert because they are so much bigger than life to me right now. And I just, I can't let that wear off. It would hurt. It's hurt before. Oh. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's the magic really going. Expensive. Like really, 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 it'll be $250 for two tickets, plus Portland is three hours away, and um, so we would be staying the night at a hotel, so it was another 200 bucks, and then you got meals and gas. So to go see 21 Pilots and to do it in any kind of style, I got to go for, I don't know, seven, 800 bucks, mm -hmm. and that's just not worked into the budget in November. You know, the connection money hasn't come in yet, so right. I, I got to play it cool until Christmas. Because I, I got kids. <laughs> and, and, and Monica was saying we live in a great era of music, the evolution or revolution in music. And one of her interests is um, she actually understands you don't want them to get too commercial. And she doesn't need video clips to listen to their music. You know, and right. I oh, my God. That. You guys remember that awesome group Counting Crows. And yes. they came out with a great single off of their wonderful album, August and Everything After, and it's called Mr. Jones, and I loved it. And then I came home from college, and I watched MTV, and I saw Adam Duritz jumping around a townhouse like an <laughs> idiot, and I wanted to burn my eyes because now I can't unsee that moron every time I listen to this band. Yeah, sometimes, but you know what, for me, I, I'm told, for instance, that I have the voice of a one-legged angel. A little bit shaky, but nonetheless magical. But if you were to watch me sing while I sing, it would ruin the magic. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, you know, Morgan, you just painted such a picture there. I'm you telling really. you. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, it's so great. I, under, I understand what Monica's saying. I was a huge fan of John Denver. I mean, I was a stalkerish fan. Oh, yeah. And Love it. Love John Mickey. I got, he, when I was about 17, he came to Philadelphia and played in Spectrum. My dad got me tickets for my birthday. And the tickets came from a man who, I used to babysit for his kids, who was the ticket manager for the Philadelphia Eagles, the football team. And I was two rows from the stage of this John Denver concert. And I was in heaven. I was moving to Aspen. I had the Colorado <laughs> High. I was in West Virginia. I was happy as a pig. I mean, it was just the most incredible thing for me all of a sudden he doing tv specials movies and i realized who his manager was found out who that was later and i was like he destroyed it he destroyed the whole vibe that john denver yep. had overexposed yes yes and yep. i always worried about with any musician that I got really into, no matter who it was, that they would get overexposed and it would destroy their career. Yeah, and it, de and it depends, because some musicians it can. Because the problem is, musicians write all these great albums about love and hurt, and then later on, they write albums about being rich musicians. And, you know, I'm sorry, I know Bob Seger's The Stage or whatever that song is, is a great road song, but when all you can do is write songs about how hard life is on the road, you forgot what you were supposed to be writing about. Mm -hmm. right. And so for me, I don't, I don't like musicians that write songs about their music because I feel like, oh, you guys, all you know now is this life and you got to remember what it felt like, what you were writing about. And those musicians who really ground themselves um, are the ones that I think are truly successful album after album after album. I am especially looking forward to Hosier and mm -hmm. what he's going to come up with. His new EP, you got to get it, you guys. It's called Nina Cried Power. Four songs. It just came out three or four weeks ago, and it's brilliant. Oh, I've heard that. Well, you know, his album, you know that Hosier album, right? With Take Me to Church and, mm -hmm. and if, if Anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, um, this is the new Van Morrison. We're talking about an, a soulful, soulful, gifted singer who is writing songs that are so fragile, uh, and, but so powerful at the same time and really emotional. And I, I can't talk enough about how good Hosier is as well. I know. He's, he's good. You know, Which you're making me, me want to go question. listen to the music. <laughs> How does the music play while you're writing? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing, like, you know, the different songs from the playlist in the book. And how, do, how does that work for you? Right. Well, you know, in Connection, there are, um, in Connection, she comes up with a way for them to, you know, she realizes that Patrick, um, the last time he probably heard music was the last time someone walked through the car with a ghetto blaster on their ear. Mm -hmm. But Walkman, 
a, a year or two before this book starts, Walkman had just come out with their portable right. disc player and headphones. And my character, Olivia, comes up with the bright idea that Patrick can sit inside of her. And this is where the intimacy starts. When she invites him to actually occupy the space that she's occupying so he can lean his head back into her head. And when she puts the headphones on her ears, his ears are placed right where they need to be to hear the music. And she plays music for him. And some of these songs, um, uh, the Friends of Mr. Cairo being the most prominent, um, are songs that, that they play. And other songs we hear in the book are playing on the kitchen radio in Queens. Olivia has a roommate, an artist named Sam, and they have a little kitchen radio. And while they're preparing meals, I have um, one of the popular uh, alternative stations in town playing things uh, for them. And that's, it's, uh, also it's a way for me to dress the time period to remind everybody okay. where we are. One of the chapters is called Dig Dug, and my two characters go to an arcade. Uh, and have an, an interesting conversation there that progresses the story. Yeah, I've got well, that and chapter Betty was, yet. Betty was saying that that scene was very moving, and I want to wish a, have send a shout out to Lori, um, who now has to leave and is saying um, this has been really fun, and she thanks Bye, all Lori. of us. Have a good evening, Lori. See you, Lori. Well, you know. It being late for some of those people reminds me also that the book, um, we get to see New Year's Eve, 1982 to 1983. Wow. And uh, so I get to describe what happens in New Year's Eve. And for a while they go to, at that time, was a very new bar called the Knickerbocker Bar and Grill. And that's on the northwest corner, basically, of uh, NYU's campus. And Jennifer and I went there. And, of course, now the bar is 35 years old or whatever. Um, but it, at this time, it was only about a year old. And they listened to live music, and they listened to uh, Billy Joel and the Carpenters, and any songs that I thought would people, you know, in 1982, they were still playing the shit out of the Carpenters on the radio and in bars. Because it's just good stuff. Sadly, I know. So, so yeah, so there was a lot of songs that, things I just thought would be playing at the time. And a couple of my favorites, Yaz. Is a favorite, oh, so yes. I mm-hmm. put that in. Only I you. Love, yes. Oh, yeah. well, you know, I didn't write that. it into this book because it, it would have been way out of place in this book. However, I did write it in my new book, uh, Talking After Midnight. The DJ is educating his audience about Yaz. And he says to them, you got to understand that Yaz is a guy named Vince Clark and Alison Moyer, and they sing electric blues. Well, before Vince Clark founded Yaz, he just founded and left another famous band. Do you guys know what it is? No, go ahead. Depeche Mode. Oh, God. Founded Depeche Mode, recorded a record with them, wrote most of it, and then left to start Yaz. He did two albums with Allison, and then he dissolved Yaz to found another famous European band, Erasure. Yeah, yeah. Vince Clark <laughs> and Andy Bell are going strong as Erasure to this very day. And I love Erasure, too. But talk oh about gosh. one guy. I mean, Vincent Clark has got his fingerprints on Depeche Mode, Yaz, and Erasure. That just blows my mind. Mm. He's the musical oh force. Gosh. I love it. 
that is cool. I absolutely love cool. it. And of course, of course, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that in in connection, there's another one of those, the the John and Vangelis. Vangelis is a name we all know because he's this you know famous weird composer who was really big in the early '80s. Right. His claim Chariots to fame is Chariots of Fire. Right? Of fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only Chariots of Fire, but an album called Albedo Zero Point Something Something, and he did the Blade Runner soundtrack. Well, uh, he and uh, John Anderson, um, from yes. yes, was dissolved. Uh, in fact, the um, the album Drama, which was a 1981 album by Yes, was actually just an album by the Trogs, dressed up as Yes. None of the band was in it. They were all dissolved. At that time, John Anderson of Yes, the lead singer, he was making three albums with Vangelis. And this one, The Friends of Mr. Cairo, was their second. And I know you probably already passed um, Back to School, but that album, uh, that song, uh, and if you have a chance to even go back and play it, this is the song that I see as my music montage when she moves to New York. And you always have to have that two-minute quick edit jump cut of new york's dirty underbelly that song is perfect for a music montage and i have always envisioned it uh should connection ever you know go that route and um i did write a simple story that could be converted to a film quite easily and i picked the songs knowing that they would sound good together and would form uh, this soundtrack has been complimented. I was really happy when Ellie put it together and I saw them all together. Like, God, that's a fun soundtrack right there. Uh, it's really phenomenal. And I have to do a shout out to Monica, who says she's a vampire because it's 4 a.m. where she is listening. <laughs> and <laughs> she said she's literally listening in bed, only opening her eyes to write. <laughs> <laughs> That is dedication. That is dedicated. I love it. Oh, my god! you got to turn the dimness down on your phone because looking at a bright light when you're trying to go to sleep tricks your brain. And right. I am constantly changing my phone's brightness to suit my time and place. Jennifer, it's 100% all the time. Two in the morning, three in the morning. I don't even know how she can look at this without squinting. And I tell her, that's why you can't sleep. Because you shine a spotlight in your face and your brain thinks the sun came up. It's the blue light. You're right. I mean, you're right, Morgan. I have it on the lowest setting, the darkest, the lowest. Um, You have to. You have to. to. I don't sleep anyway. Uh, Like Monica. You're a vampire. vampire. (laughs) I I, I wake up at 1.30 in the morning. And I'll go back to sleep at four, sometimes five. Yeah. You know, you, the, my problem, you know, when I get obsessed with a record, especially a record like 21 Pilots, which has a lot to hear, mm-hmm. I, if I can't sleep, and this happened last night, I, I, I got up at one o'clock to, as usual, go to the bathroom, and I realized I'm not going to get back to sleep. Oh, well, it's time to pull out the iPad and sit it on my stomach and put those headphones on and just <laughs> tour this record. But, of course, inevitably, it just gets me more excited. Right, and an hour later, I'm like, no, oh, I really can't go to sleep. <laughs> so it always backfires. But sometimes, you guys, um, when a record, the last time it happened uh, was an album. And I, and if, if you're, you know, we were talking about loving Vincent. And you, you could hate yes. Vincent Van Gogh. But if you're a fan of cinema, you want to see the movie because it's groundbreaking. 
Well, there was another album that came out in 2012 by a band called Animal Collective. And this was their 10th album. I'd never heard of them before. And the reason I bought it was because Rolling Stone magazine simultaneously gave it five stars while warning listeners that this would likely be the most challenging album that they're going to hear this year. And they likened it to a bunch of aliens who heard radio songs coming from Earth and assumed that that's how we talked, that was our language, and they decided to write back to us and send us songs of their own, and that's what this album is. That's how alien and foreign it sounds. And again, just like, um, just like 21 Pilots, a really heavy concept like that sounds great on paper, but it can turn into a bunch of friggin' noise. You know, because a song still has to be listenable. It has to be likable. It has to enter your soul. Well, like the 21 Pilots Trench album, this Animal Collective album is very listenable. It's very fun. And it's so new. It's as if they don't know what a guitar is. They're using all these other instruments that you've never heard of before. They're making things up. And it's the same thing again with, um, yeah, you can hear a little bit of ukulele on 21 Pilots, which only makes it even more interesting to me. But this Animal it. Collective album, let me give you the title of it. It's called Centipede Hertz. And Hertz is spelled capital H, small z, period. Like the frequency, a uh, Hertz. And megahertz. so if a frequency was called, yeah, so, uh, you know, like 18 megahertz. So this is called Centipede Hertz. Again, sounds very alien by the band Animal Collective. This band and their album, Centipede Hurts, and the Stone... I keep wanting to say Stone Temple Pilots instead of 21 Pilots. Their album, Trench, this is coming from a person I own thousands and thousands of records and have written 600 songs. These two albums have been standouts in the last two decades in terms of reinventing music. Even Sgt. Pepper didn't reinvent music. They just picked up a sitar and let George Harrison write a few songs for once. But <laughs> what they did do was they put more music in an album than had ever been done before because they kept mixing their four tracks together into one and then starting all over with three new tracks and mixing it down to one and starting off. No one had ever done that before. And so Have they literally heard? invented a new way to record a record. Have you heard Yoko Ono's new song? No, is that a joke? Oh my God! Yeah, no, <laughs> it's it's not a joke. She did put one out. Wow. Well, you know but... what? I, I tell you what. I, I do like Yoko Ono in, in some ways because when John Lennon wrote "Working Class Hero," she heard it, and while he was recording it, she called his record company, and she said, "John's going to send you a song," and he uses the word "fuck." twice in this song you will not edit that out otherwise you're never going to get this song and he forced she forced the record company to promise that they would never edit out the two bad words and got that deal inked in before john even finished recording the song because she wanted to protect the integrity of working class hero because sometimes you just gotta use that word uh and so hey, wait, and john what's... used it it's not so much the words. She screeches through the whole song. She doesn't. If she's maybe she's doing it in Japanese. I'm not sure. But it's just, I know, right? it's just like. She sounds, 
she's a savvy businesswoman, and she produced she some really nice, um, she some really nice art. But no, I don't find her to be much of a singer either. No, she's not. She's not. But anyway, so Morgan. Yo. It has been an incredible evening with you. Yes. Well, we are running yes, out of time. Has, I, I like you managed. How do you stay on Mixler for two hours and 21 minutes? I get cut off after 60 minutes. Because uh, I pay for it. Oh, okay. That would explain it. Because some of my writing sessions, I've got to go like, listen, I'm going to stop and start a new one because it's in 58 minutes and I'm not done writing. <laughs> you know, so then Karen has to stop and go to another Mixler channel. And then uh, I get you now. No, I have a subscription for it. Well, so you guys go on the East hours Coast, I mean, you're flirting, with, you're flirting with 1130 here. So I, it's only 830 where I am. That's true. The night is young, Morgan. The Poor night mom. is young. <laughs> and you Betty is heading out as well. Betty, it's uh, such a pleasure that you were able to join us. It was oh, yeah, very, very we haven't talked to you for a while. And Monica, Monica, I guess the gold star. Are, are so <laughs> awesome. Betty's got so much energy. Oh, yes, absolutely. she does. <laughs> she really does. So, and she does. So do you, Morgan, for that matter. And we're yes. so thankful you could join us. This has been such a treat. I've been looking forward to it um, since we talked about the prospect of possibly having you on the podcast 10 weeks ago. And mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's just great. And wish you so much success and much more happiness. Um, it's just, it's wonderful that uh, you and Jennifer are are living the dream. You know, it's it's really, really great. And we're very happy for you. Okay, well, Cameron's trying to call me. So. Who's trying to call you? Okay. Oh, yeah, I was just giving the phone to Jennifer because Cameron's trying to get a hold of us. And he's out there. With, uh, well, then definitely we'll let you go. Okay, well, have a great night, you guys. Have a great night and a great weekend, everybody. Have a great, good Monica, night. Monica, sweet dreams, my friend. I am inspired and in awe of you. <laughs> and we're going to leave you with some friends of Mr. Caro as we Sounds great. go off. Have a great night and much luck and success to you, Morgan. Thanks again, you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Good night. Good night. Thank you.